Well, I feel about you guys kind of the way I felt the first Sunday we worshiped and I was in the sanctuary and when we started worshiping and I was in there with other people worshiping, tears just started streaming. I was just overwhelmed and I realized, Lord, I have missed this. I mean, I knew I had. I don't think I realized how much I had missed it. And I am just so grateful to be gathered in person. And for those of you joining us online, thank you. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for jumping in to the book of John. Last semester, we studied John 1 through 15. And we are excited about now picking back up in our new part of the last half of John, John 16 through 21, entitled Humanity Redeemed. Well, why do we need to be redeemed? <laughs> what is the purpose of redemption? We need redemption. In fact, the word redeemed actually literally means to get back or win back. And that's from our introduction in our Bible study. And the quote says, As God's possession created for his own purpose, we were lost to God when we fell into sin and subsequently death. But God reclaimed us through Christ's death on the cross our redemption at the high price of the blood of his son demonstrates his love for us. God demonstrated his, his love for us, and he sent Jesus Christ while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, and so he has come that we might be redeemed, that we might be back in right relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. I know Dana mentioned 2020 and all that we've experienced. Well, I just happened to Google current events in 2020 yesterday, and I took the list of the things that I saw and added to it some of the other things that I have seen and experienced, and here's just a few of them. We started the year out in the midst of an impeachment trial, then a worldwide pandemic, quarantines, stay-at-home orders, an economic shutdown, school shutdown, parents became homeschooling parents for the first time, Long lines in food banks, racial unrest, riots and looting, a polarized presidential election, murder hornets, wildfires, hurricanes, flooding, human trafficking, immorality, child abuse, abortion, social media addiction, drug abuse, anxiety is skyrocketing, as is depression and suicide, especially among Gen Z, those born after 1996. Unemployment, marriage and family under assault, sensationalized news so much so that we can't trust anybody on either side to get the news right we are depraved our hearts are wicked and past our understanding only the lord can reveal to us our own hearts and when we look out at our culture people are hurting they feel lost and hopeless and they're seeking we know we know the answer to every need they have, and his name is Jesus. But in the midst of turmoil and chaos, there are going to be many voices speaking, trying to speak into our lives. And so I want to encourage you to beware of false teachers, popular authors who claim to be Christians yet distort and twist the truth of God's word. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, it says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. You need to sift all of teaching through the word of God. The word of God is our plumb line for teaching. And so you need to sift it through the word of God. In fact, I stopped by the church kitchen and got a sieve. 
a sift this morning. And it's as though we're going to put this on our head and every thought, every bit of teaching, everything we listen to has to come through the sift, the sieve of God's word. And we're going to sift out anything that does not line up with the truth of God's word. Now, I've given you a couple of uh, suggestions. One of them is a book. For those of you who have children, Mama Bear Apologetics is wonderful. It's a tremendous resource. Um, She really gives us some discernment and insight into our current culture and to words that have been hijacked and redefined and how to navigate and also train your children to navigate the minefield landscape all around us. Then I've given you some resources of authors and podcasts to listen to. I would just encourage you, listen to those teachers and read those authors who are well-grounded in the Word of God. It will help build up your faith and strengthen you as you then go out as light in the midst of darkness, as we are salt in a world that is decaying and desperately needs the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we look at the book of John, we recognize the author. Who was the author? John self-described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that about him, that he was so certain of God's love for him. Because when we are certain for his love, in fact, 1 John 4.18 tells us that perfect love actually casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And those who fear are not perfected or mature in their relationship with God. And so we want to walk in maturity. To do that, we have to trust the love of God And when we trust and rest in his love, he forces out the fear and he fills us with love for others. So John is a beautiful example of a wholehearted follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, he was the, uh, he discipled Polycarp, who also discipled another great church leader. It says the early church father, Irenaeus, was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John. And he testified on Polycarp's authority that John wrote the gospel during his residence in Ephesus in Asia Minor when he was advanced in age, probably somewhere around 80 to 90. And then we know that after that is when he's exiled to the Isle of Patmos and he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. When was it written? I just shared with you sometime between 80, 80 to 90. The purpose, John 20, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wrote to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. And we have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who tell the story of Christ and kind of help fill in the gaps that each one of them may leave. They fill in for each other, and John comes, a totally separate gospel, a more spiritual gospel, if you will, that is expressing and displaying the deity of Jesus Christ. There are prominent words that I've given you. Believe appears 98 times. Love appears 57 times. And it's important to look at these these words that appear so many times in the book of John because we know how important they are to him. And then the key, John 1, 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John, the disciple Jesus loved, was focused on the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, let's turn to John chapter 1 and let's look at verses 1 through 4. says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You know, recently I listened to the testimony of Nabil Karish. He is an apologist who worked for the Ravi Zacharias Institute. And in his testimony, he talked about being in high school and having Christians reach out to him and try to witness to him, but they could never answer his questions about Christ. Very pointed questions, proof of the resurrection, the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. In fact, he asked one young woman when she was asking him and inviting him to come to church, well, you say that Jesus claimed to be God. We believe as Muslims that Jesus was a prophet, that he came from God. But you say he claims to be God. Where did he claim to do that? She didn't know. We just read it. (laughs) John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know that Jesus Christ is God. He is the great I am. And it wouldn't be until Nabil went to college and was on a debate team with a believer who knew the word of God that he would have his questions answered. And not only would he have his questions answered, but he was challenged, challenged to study the accuracy, the historicity of the word of God, of the resurrection, and to see if Jesus' claims were actually true. And after four years, he came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is God is the Savior and the only way to God. It was very difficult for him to leave his Muslim family and their beliefs, but he found Jesus to be better, greater, higher, the only answer to all of his searching. And I hope that if you don't know him, that you will dig into this study with us and that you will see the beauty of the Savior displayed for us during his time on earth and all that he's accomplished for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ is God. In fact, he claimed to be the I am. We studied last semester the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And that goes back to uh, actually to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When God appeared to Moses in the desert, in the burning bush, you remember that, he appeared to him in the burning bush, and the bush was burning, but it was not being consumed. And in it, when Moses asked, who am I to tell them has sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It's the perfect verb of being. What he's saying is, I am, I was, and I will be. This God who is not bound by time is the eternal I am for our every need. And Jesus Christ revealed the I am to us as he took on flesh. The word of God through whom everything was created took on flesh, lived on this sinful planet without sin. And he said, I am to his followers. I am the bread of life. He grants us the daily manna. The manna in the Old Testament wilderness is a picture of Christ giving us daily everything we need. He said, I am the light of the world. And only Jesus grants revelation. So that as we study the word of God, we don't just accumulate knowledge, but we actually see. Much like the scales fell off the eyes of Saul, whom we know as Paul, when God... uh, 
met with him on that road to Damascus and blinded him for three days. And then when Ananias came to him and presented the gospel to him, the scales fell off. Suddenly he saw, he understood, and he immediately was baptized and became the great apostle Paul. Jesus said, I am the door to the sheep. We enter through him and we enter into his care because he tells us, I am the good shepherd, which means he is our protector and our provider David knew that. Psalm 23, one of the most beloved psalms in all of the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus told his followers he was the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. And then he told Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. And it is only Christ who conquered death that we too may have life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In this time with the disciples just before the cross, in John chapter 14, he responded to the question of where he was going, and, and he said, you know where I'm going. And what does Thomas say? Lord, how can we know where you're going? And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he told him he was going to prepare a place for them, and if he went and prepared a place, he would come again for them, that where he was, there we might be also. Not only that, he is the true vine. John chapter 15, the last chapter that we looked at last semester, we saw that he is the true vine. And it is only as we abide in him that we have everything we need for life and godliness. As his spirit flows through us unhindered. You know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was revealed to Peter, James, and John. In fact, I'd like to look at Matthew 17. If you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn there with me. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses... And Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, and they were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. And do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Jesus was transfigured. They saw a glimpse of his glory. And who appeared with him? Moses, the one that God had appeared to in the burning bush and revealed himself to as I am. And then Elijah, the one who was taken up in a chariot of fire who did not experience physical death. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are the only three in all of Scripture that have been recorded that experienced a 40-day fast, a miraculous time of fasting. And God was using Moses and Elijah to encourage Jesus about his soon-coming exodus his departure. I don't know all that those in heaven know, but I do know they by, by this they are somewhat aware of the general timeline and what is happening and what God is moving toward as we await the second coming. Jesus was transfigured. 
they heard the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And then in John chapter 8, verse 58, see what Jesus did as he responded to some of the religious people. He had been teaching in the temple, and they were questioning him. We're going to look at 58, but I'm going to pick up in verse 53. Jesus was speaking to them and explaining to them. They, they said they were descendants of Abraham. And he said, if you're really descendants of Abraham, if you really love God, you're going to know I have come from God. You're going to believe the things that I speak. And he, they said, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, what does that tell us? Abraham, Moses, Elijah are very much alive in the presence of God. They are aware of God's basic timeline. He said Abraham rejoiced to see his day, his coming to earth, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pointed to. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now listen to this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Son of God because they had preconceived ideas that the Messiah would come and set up a kingdom on earth. But Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth, a completely different kingdom, which is very important for us as believers and as followers of Jesus Christ to understand and to not get too tied up in the kingdoms of this world. And that's a very, um, I think, timely warning in the midst of a political season when it's easy for us to get pulled to the right or to the left, Republican, Democrat, Independent, and begin to take on the battles of the world as though they were foremost. Now I want you to be involved. I want you to vote. I want you to know the issues. But I want you to understand you are primarily a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we are ambassadors on this earth. And we are to serve under governments. Romans 13 makes that clear. And we are to respect those in leadership over us. And we should take responsibility of our right and opportunity to vote. But ultimately, my desire is not to advance the kingdom of man on this earth. My desire is to advance the kingdom of God to see people come into his kingdom through salvation, to see the church healthy and strong and vibrant, the light and the salt that Jesus Christ called us to be. Now, as we look at John 13 through 17, that is Christ's discourse, his instructions to the disciples. Some have called it their manual for living after he's gone. Look at this quote from D.A. Carson. He says, several of the signs of the first half of the fourth gospel are immediately followed by extended discourses that unpack the significance of the sign. You remember, Jesus would tell um, a parable or he would perform a miracle and then he'd pull his disciples in close afterwards and he would explain to them what the parable meant or what happened in that miracle. Well, he goes on to say, here the order is reversed. 
One of the purposes of the chapters immediately before us, embracing the Last Supper, the farewell discourse, and the final prayer of Jesus, John 13 through 17, is to unpack before the event the significance of Jesus' departure, his death, burial, and resurrection, exaltation, and the consequent coming of the Holy Spirit. So let's just briefly review, because we're moving into, for next week, John chapter 16. Let's look at John 13. What do we see happening here? Jesus is having the Lord's Supper. It's at the time of Passover. And so he is saying the time for Passover's celebration is about to be over with because the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world is about to be sacrificed once and for all for the sins of the world. So Jesus then initiates the Lord's Supper. And he's telling them whenever you meet and you break the bread and you drink of the cup, Remember me. Remember what I have done for you and live in light of Calvary. That's exactly what he's saying to them. And in the midst of this, we see Jesus serving. What does he do? He puts on a towel. He wraps himself to wash the disciples' feet. Now, that was like the most menial task that the lowest of the low servant would do. And what is Jesus modeling for us? He tells his disciples, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And the greatest among them kneels before them, washing their feet. That's humbling, especially in light of the fact that the Gospel of Luke tells us during the meal, they're actually arguing over who's the greatest. In the midst of their argument, what does Jesus do? He models what the greatest does. The greatest serves. Because the greatest loves. And I was blown away. I've been rereading a book, The Strong Name. It's out of print. It's kind of hard to find, but it's by James Stewart. But listen to what he says about this scene. It's impossible to visualize with any degree of imagination that scene of long ago and not have the thought borne in upon you that what you are witnessing is the judgment of the world in the upper room. I see Jesus kneeling with towel and basin at his followers' feet. And something within me says... There is the world's infernal pride judged. I see him breaking the bread in token of his own immeasurable sacrifice, and I know there is the world's hectoring, domineering, selfishness, revealed and dragged into the light and judged. I hear the quiet voice speaking, its words of infinite tenderness and pity and compassion. And there are all our rancors, bitternesses and hatreds judged. I sense that wonderful tranquility, that heart of peace, that calm, ineffable certainty of God. And I realize there are all our faithless fears, our worries, our crass spiritual blindness judged to outward appearance on the dark night, the dark betrayal night. Christ was coming under the judgment of Caesar. But in reality, that upper room was the judgment of the world. What an example Jesus Christ is for us. And when I think about 2020 and the anxiety that so many of us walk in, I realize that it's a trap, it's a pit, that the enemy has set for us as believers to suck us in like the rest of the world and all of the hysteria instead of being grounded in the Word of God and filled with the Spirit, knowing that our God is absolutely sovereign that he is on his throne, that he is moving all of history to his prophesied 
ends. And we have absolutely nothing to worry about because he is our shepherd. We will not want. He will provide every need we have as long as we seek to trust him. And in the midst of what Christ was facing, knowing he was about to go to the garden, it was there that he would be in great agony. He would be arrested. He would be crucified. Bearing the sin of the world on his body, the light of the world would be covered and darkness would cover the entire world from noon until three, until he was able to pay the price for our sin and say, it is finished, paid in full. He took my place and he took your place and he paid our sin debt so we don't have to live like those who don't know him. We know our God, and we can rest and be assured of his love, of his provision, because he has given us everything we need in Christ Jesus. Then in John 14, we see Jesus comforting his disciples. And what is he telling them? That he's going to prepare a place for them. He tells them that he's the way to that place, that he's going to come back to them. And then he tells them, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who will be your helper, who will be your teacher, who will be your comforter. He's giving them the role of the Spirit and that we're to abide in him and that we're to love one another just as he has loved us. And then in John 15, he talks to us about how important it is for us to abide in the vine, that we can do absolutely nothing apart from him. But we know that in him, we can do anything he's called us to do because he will give us the power we need, filling us internally, and that we can ask anything according to his will and he will hear us and he will move in answer to our prayers. And then in John 16, we're going to be moving into his warning about the world, into the very passion of Christ, his agony in Gethsemane, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances, and then his commission. What beautiful scriptures, what holy ground we will be traversing in the next few weeks You know, Christ requires absolute abandon, wholehearted followers. He will not reveal himself to half-hearted disciples. So I want to encourage you, this semester, go all in. Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, and he will. Because he is better than anything this world has to offer. Better. than anything this world has to offer. And he alone can meet your need for intimacy and purpose, what your heart is longing for. And you will find absolute and ultimate fulfillment only in him. What a blessing. I can tell you as I've prayed about us coming back together, my heart has been so full and I've been so excited and so ready to see your faces. And for those of you joining us online, we love you as well. You know, you can't help but love your neighbor as you love yourself when you fall in love with the Lord and you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength because then he fills you with his love. And that's how he loves us. And it's the love that serves. It's the love that doesn't have to be served or recognized or noticed. It's the love that reaches out to the least of these. And he will cause us to look out on our world that is in such chaos and pain and brokenness. Instead of fear, we'll experience love. And we'll be praying, God, 
How can I help meet needs? How can you use me to proclaim truth and love and hope in the midst of such a tumultuous time? He'll open doors for us that no man can close, and he'll close doors that no man can open. Ask him this semester to meet you in his word and then to fill you with his spirit that we might go out as his ambassadors, loving a lost world to Jesus. We're going to close our time together this morning, worshiping the Lord once again. You know, John 21, 25, the, the whole chapter, the whole book closes with, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And the song that we're going to close with in worship today is from Gardens to Grave. Listen to the lyrics. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws, Lord. You've seen them all, and you still call me friend. Because the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. There's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. <clears throat> Lord, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you.